0: Father, were it not for You, it would not. It would not be well with our souls. Lord, you don't have to live very long. Not even get to kindergarten when you realize life's not fair. Sometimes sometimes it's overwhelmingly difficult. It's not well. But Lord, we don't live there. The reason we don't live there is because You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us here. And His death on the cross gives us life. And in the midst of incredible pain, we can say, It is well. It is well with my soul. Lord, we thank You for this day. Open our hearts and our minds. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I, I feel that that song is far more appropriate because in my years of ministry I've, I've probably given about at least uh, 30 New Year's messages. They always begin with jokes and they always begin with resolutions and commitments and trying harder and doing this and doing that and doing the other yeah, not this time. It's not where I'm going to go this time. Uh, and as we as we go through this message, I pray that it will be a message of comfort for us for the new year. Three years ago, today, this very day, I was sitting out in the desert uh, under the stars counseling an, an army soldier who was a drone pilot. He did not like what he was doing. He did not like the way the war was being conducted against ISIS. He was involved with uh, what were known as hunter-killer missions. And uh, he, like all soldiers, they don't like to take life unless they see how it can save others' lives. And I asked him if there was ever a time when he felt that what he was doing was righteous. And he said, yes, yes. It was when he was flying overwatch for military units moving across the desert. When he was the eyes, when he was the ears, and as required, when he was the sword, he felt good about that. Overwatch. Caring for the troops. Victor Yap, a uh, fellow DTS uh, grad and uh, pastor of the Hong Kong Church in Hong Kong, uh, tells the story of an engineer who ultimately ended up in his church, but he was here first. Educated in the U.S., he was an engineer. He did an, his internship uh, with NASA here in Houston, and then at the end of that, he just he just made an unforeseen change. He said, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna do something different." And so at the church there, he shared his testimony, and it's something that uh, we'll all appreciate. It's He said this, Passing the oral board is the culmination of ten years of medical school, residency, and practice. If I were to include the college years and pre-med studies, the total would be twenty years. My decision to enter medicine, in part, was to follow Jesus to heal the sick and to ease suffering. As an anesthesiologist, I have the crucial role in putting patients to sleep and reviving them later. In biblical times, this would be regarded as a supernatural power performed only by Jesus Christ. And although the patients may not be aware of my presence during their surgery, I constantly monitor and watch over them. Not just the operative part but the entire patient. He goes on to say, "...this reminds me of how our Lord watches over each and every one of us, even though we may not be aware of His presence. I thank the Lord for giving me knowledge and skills to take care of the weak and sick, for He is the true healer and life giver." He had already graduated from college... He had already made his career decisions, but in his faith, in the new year, he decided to take a new course. This time, not engineering, it would be medicine. Now, I'm not sure that I would have made a good uh, uh, anesthesiologist, but I do understand what it means to watch over someone. Perhaps you do as well. I tend towards the kind of the one who watches over, not the one who who's being watched. That was just something that was embedded in my in my childhood. But that's why I would love to sit with security forces in the tower and on the fence wherever they were at, whether it was Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, the Emirates, or Iraq. There's something deeply meaningful and significant about standing watch while others rest or while they they sleep. Knowing that you're a part of someone's safety and security uh, but like i said i'm not an easy one to watch over at least i wasn't till the spring of uh, 2004 the lord me showed me in a very strange way how good it felt to be watched over i had a few little aches and pains i was working in the hospital at that time as a uh, as a chaplain going through a, a thing called clinical pastoral education it was a a year-long internship, and we spent a lot of time in the emergency room. And so I got to know the people. They got to know me. And so when I had a few aches and pains, they said, hey, let's check you out. Now, one of the cool things about being in a hospital like that, a military hospital, when they say check you out, they'll check everything out. So they checked everything out. And as it turns out... I had these huge, uh, gallbladder stones. They said, hey, let's take those out. And oh, by the way, your left kidney is only operating about 5%. Everything's clogged up down there. Amazing that you're, you know, not suffering from that. We're going to take it out. Well, how in the world did that happen? You know, it was, it was from an early childhood injury. Actually happened right here in Sugarland. Uh, and I remember it. I just had no idea what the consequence of it. Uh, would be so i had a as a nephrectomy i think that's what it's called anyway whenever you have told me at the end of something it's probably it's probably uh, going to hurt a little bit anyway so they took it out and i don't know what went wrong i have no idea obviously i was like you know unconscious but i ended up in the intensive care Something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. I was strapped to a bed and I was like vertical. So some of you nurses, medical folks, maybe you know what that means. I do not. But I was uh, not conscious in the sense that I could understand words or logically process information in any way. I was not aware at all in that sense. I had no cognitive thing going on. But interestingly enough, I was emotionally aware. I had an awareness about me. In fact, one of the awarenesses that I had, nonverbal, very fascinating, and it helped me, I'll explain a little bit about what I did as a consequence in just a moment. But somebody in the room didn't want to be there. And I knew that. And, uh, that caused me some agitation. But then there was somebody in the room that wanted to be there, and I knew that, and that caused considerable peace. And so after I came out of all this and I became aware and cognitive and conscious and all that, I asked Barb about it. I said, you know, I had these sensations. I I, I can't think of it in any other way. You can't really put words to it. And she said, oh yeah, the nurse that was there was late. Because this was completely unexpected and so she was having to work overtime and she was like, you know, missing a date or something, right? And so she was upset about being there. And then, of course, she was the other person that was there. Interestingly to me, I could not then, nor can I now, verbalize what I felt. I can only assume it was some kind of... Perhaps infantile state, such as a child, might feel when a parent is around or when someone perhaps who's irritated with them is around. And all they understand is this feeling of acceptance or non-acceptance. It's kind of an interesting thing. But I'll tell you what I began to do after that, religiously. I began to read to my patients who were unconscious or out of any sense of awareness. Because if that could happen to me and i could feel those things okay maybe i wouldn't remember what was said maybe i wouldn't remember even the person being there or who it was but it could be that i would have this sense of presence that was pleasing that was accepting and uh so it's a practice that i that i've had so i don't know what what would mean to you to have certain knowledge that someone who loves you, who cares for you, and is there with you, watching over you. I mean, this is the case with, with God. Uh, Barb shared a Puritan prayer with me yesterday that I, 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 was so touched by it, I thought I would share it with you for the, the, uh, as a way to think about the new year, as a way to think about life, as a way to think about each day. They would pray this prayer some anyway. Each day. Uh, but we could put in uh, the first part. It says, Giver of all, another day is ended. Perhaps we could say, Giver of all, another year is ended. And I take my place beneath my great Redeemer's cross, where healing streams continually descend, where balm is poured into every room uh, wound, where I wash anew, in the all-cleansing blood, assure that thou seest in me no spots of sin. My sin, oh the bliss, the, that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I hope you all feel that this morning. Some of us labor under that from time to time. Understand that it is on the cross. Yet a little while and I shall go to Thy home and and be no more seen. Help me to gird up the loins of my mind, to quicken my step, to speed as if each moment were my last, that my life would be joy, my death's glory. I thank Thee for the temporal blessings of this world, the freshing air, the light of the sun the food that renews strength, the raiment that clothes, the dwelling that shelters, the sleep that gives rest, the starry canopy of night, the summer breeze, the flower's sweetness, the music of flowing streams, the happy endearments of family, kindred, friends, things animate, things inanimate, minister to my comfort. My cup runs over. Suffer me not, to be insensible. You know what anesthesia means in Greek? Without feeling. Insensible. That's what it means. It means insensible to these daily mercies. And I fear that we are. So often, we do not praise for the things that the Lord bestows. He goes on to say, Thy hand bestows blessing. Thy power averts evil. I bring my tribute of thanks for spiritual grace is the full warmth of faith, the cheering presence of thy spirit, the strength of thy restraining will. And then this line, thy spiking of hell's artillery. Blessed be my sovereign Lord. Now, most of that you were probably able to understand really easily, but that, some of you may not be familiar with that last line, spiking. Uh, of hell's artillery. When I was in the army, I was, uh, I was an artilleryman. It's what I did. And one of the very first things that they taught you how to do was to spike the artillery piece. Now, in our case, what it meant was putting an incendiary grenade down the tube. The reason for that, when you're in, uh, light infantry and you've got these small artillery pieces, it would take only about a minute or two, literally, 60 seconds, 120 seconds maybe, to turn that weapon around and shoot it at you. And so you, if you're going to leave it, you're going to ruin it. Now back in the day, they literally would spike it. They would literally have a spike that they would drive down where they put the powder or the lighter in there and so it would become unusable, or at least during that battle it would be unusable. So that's what that means. In other words, what he's saying is, is God is watching over you and He's actually hindering Satan from doing everything that Satan could do. He's actually watching over you and protecting and caring for you. I mean, there are many passages that assure us that God watches over us. And this is especially true when things seem to be going wrong. You know, the the song... It, it brought back, we never know why things cross our minds, do we? But it brought back, as we, as I was listening to, uh, it is well with my soul, uh, when sorrows like sea billows roll. And uh, the thing that came to my mind when I was a young boy, I don't know how old I was, probably under six, I was out at Galveston and I got caught and knocked down by a wave. And when I, and it rolled me. And when I tried to, when I would try to get up, I would be hit again. And then I would be hit again. I was in dread, fear, terror that I was going to drown when finally strong arms picked me up, my, my uncle. It is especially true to know that God watches over us when things are going wrong, when we struggle, when there is no way out. And at times, you know, we want to look to the future of the new year and we come up with resolutions. Once I made a resolution that I wouldn't drink any more Diet Coke. Do not make resolutions that you can't keep. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it, but at other times, you know, we're deeply under uncertain as to what the new year is going to bring. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't, I don't have what it takes to think about new commitments or or new resolutions. I'm more concerned about whether I'm going to stay in my home, whether I'll have a job through the year. Should I retire? Should I keep going? You know, or whatever it might be. What is my life going to hold financially or relationally or medically? Is there an accident in store? Who knows? No one does. We do not know. While Revelation may seem to be an unusual place to draw a New Year's sermon from, I, I find something that I believe will help us in this new year in Revelation chapter three and verses seven through ten. This is a passage that will give comfort seven through ten and it and it may give us comfort to go through the next year. So turn with me there in Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 through 10. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens I know your works Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The first and most obvious thing that that we note about this is that the speaker is none other than the Messiah, the Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, the End. He is the one who opens doors and closes doors, and no one can shut and no one can open. You know, this is this is our Lord speaking. And second, there are there are deep eschatological, that is, things about the future overtones in this in this text. Verse eleven reads, "I am coming soon." I mean, this is. A clear reference to things to come. And the third thing that stands out is Christ's authority. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And that's where we're going to focus most of our attention, not all. We're going to ask and answer the question, what is an open door and how does that apply to our lives? I mean, is is an open door only available to the church in Philadelphia? Is it, is it only for the future? Or can we take some comfort because it applies to us? Now, the first warrant all right, for my comments comes from what the text actually doesn't say as opposed to what it does say. The text does not say, The open door. It says, An open door. So right away we're faced with the impression that there's the possibility of other open doors. The Lord is the Lord of doors. Open or shut. I mean, far too often we say, that the Lord is the Lord of open doors. And and so uh, we, we relish those, we want those, we look at those, oh, the Lord opened this door, the Lord opened that door. But, But oh, that, that other door, that was closed. You know what? The Lord is the Lord of closed doors too. He is the Lord of doors, open or closed. You know, we, the, when we have the second, when the Lord closes the door or something like that, what we do is oftentimes we'll say, well, you know, the Lord didn't answer my prayer. When in fact, the Lord did just that. He answered your prayer. He said, no, or at least not now. You know, in, 19, uh, in 1980, uh, Gary Fries, another DTS grad, he wrote a book called Decision Making and the, the Will of God. And it was meaningful to many, many people. And he argued, he argued that God does not have a specific will for your life, only a way of living life. That is the way of wisdom. He said this, not only is the individual will of God not found in Scripture, but the suggested process for ending it is absent as well. And so people, people flock to it. And even though he was a fellow DTS graduate, I, I didn't, I didn't. I don't, I don't hold that view. But one of the primary reasons that I found fault with this uh, book was the very warrant that he used to write the book. He said that he had to decide which college to go to by a certain date. And so he poured out his heart, and he poured out his spirit before the Lord. Lord, Lord, tell me which college I've got to go to. What do you want me to do? He didn't get an answer. So his conclusion was this. Lord wants me to pick. He doesn't care. He doesn't care whether... A&M or that other place in Louisiana. (laughs) The Lord doesn't care. And so what, what you end up with is his conclusion was, you know what, if the Lord doesn't care, then how do I live my life? Well, it's simple. You just live by making wise decisions. And as to the practical elements of his decision-making process, it's right on. I agree with it, that 100%. But I want and then I hope that you have the spiritual attunement to this to see what I saw immediately, immediately. Gary's decisional matrix only included college. What if the Lord didn't want him to go to college? What if the Lord wanted him to go on a short-term mission trip instead? What if the Lord wanted him to get a job and work? What if the Lord wanted something else from him, perhaps to take time off? Maybe even join the military. How about that? No, 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 no. No other possible doors entered his thought process. His matrix blocked God out, you see. I think we need to be very careful not to create these binary situations with God. And when I say binary, yes, I'm also including other options that may be out there in terms of you may be looking at three colleges. Okay, but anyway, the point is to go to college or not to go to college, right? Or which college, I should say. To go to college and which one am I going to go to? And I just find that, you know what we should say, uh, and Pavan said it this morning at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the breaking of bread. What we should say is, if the Lord wills. We don't know. In my mind, it points to this problem that we have as a people. And it's something that's embedded in us, I think. Stated plainly, it would sound like this. Lord, this is the door that I want you to open. Oh, that's the door that I want you to close. You see, we are the orderers of the doors, and yet the Scripture plainly tells me that it's the Lord who opens doors, who closes doors. In this new year, let us leave the doors to Him. Now, indeed, in other, other Scripture we discover that regardless of which door, when it comes to salvation... He's the only one. He's talking. Isn't that great? I love it. I, I love it. A couple of years ago, I, I preached an entire sermon on this about uh, when it comes to salvation, He is the the only door. I talked about two religions, Bethel and Babel. Bethel and Babel. And what I did was I explained how that Babel... Un, unlike our English definition, in no way means confusion. Not at all. It doesn't mean disorientation. It doesn't mean chaos. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means Bab, door, L, God. It means the door of God. And how that people tried to build a tower up there so that they could create a door that reached to the heavens. And how then that Jacob went and Slept And as he slept, he dreamed of angels coming down from a ladder from the door of heaven. And then in John 10, we find out that Jesus Christ Himself is the door. So man building a tower to open a door to God is overthrown by God, creating this ladder showing that salvation comes from Him. You don't get into heaven you don't go through the door of God by our will but by his will and then we find that that door is Jesus and all who come to him must come through him so this in the, in that sense it, there's a deeply theological significance but again i want to go back it doesn't say the open door which is exactly what that would mean it It's a clear reference to Christ and salvation. But an open door that broadens the sense for us a little bit. So what might it mean? What's a door anyway? Something you go through. Something you go in. Something you go out. So it may be a reference to evangelistic possibilities. That's how Paul used it on one occasion. It also may be the ability to do good. If you look in Acts 14 or 1 Corinthians, there's also in Colossians, you'll see that it's used in this way as well. If you go further down in this very passage, it may be that you're able to go into uh, the access to the heavenly palace there. Um, But finally, and much less used, is that it may mean that it's an open way of escape, a way to be free from uh, persecution. And Lord knows they needed that at that time. Now, here's the thing. No one can say with precision exactly what this means. And so there's always a bit of wrestling with it. But we do know with certainty that Jesus' authority had set before them an open door which no one could shut. And Christ commended them. Why did He do that? We find the answer for that in in verse 10. He said, "Christ, He commended them and did this for them because of uh, two things. We're going to only mention one. Because you have kept My word about patient endurance. Hupomene. It's this notion of bearing up under. Stress. It's this notion of being rolled by the sea billows in life and not giving up. In spite of the opposition that they faced, they remained faithful to Jesus. Now, how did they remain faithful? Two primary ways. First, they kept His Word. And keep is the word that I want to focus on here for a moment. It's a really neat word. It means to guard. It means to watch over. It means to provide overwatch. It doesn't mean guard in the sense that to keep someone, like a prison guard, you know, to keep someone from getting out. It means more in the sense of guarding something precious. Much in the sense that the guards that I stood with on the, on the line. It's not to keep from escaping. It's to watch over. It's to preserve. This is exactly what the church had done with the Word of God. They held it with high esteem and they guarded it and preserved it. You know, here at First Colony Bible Chapel, I believe that we measure up very well in that department. I think that the comments that were directed to the Church of Philadelphia would be directed to us. The leaders, the elders of this church hold absolutely that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and it is the sole basis on which we base our faith, our conduct, and this church. It is on the Bible that we teach and that we preach. There in Philadelphia, as well as as here, there was a a reverence for God's Word. And that is what led to the second way that they demonstrated their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. They had not denied His name. verse 8 we see, you've, You've kept My name. Therefore, Jesus promised this very special protection. He says this, Because you have kept My Word... About patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. Again, we note a few things. One of which is that the promise is made to the people based on the fact that they had kept His word about patient endurance. Because they had done that, He will keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the earth. I just say amen and amen to that. Jesus is going to keep living believers at that time from the hour of trial by physically removing them from the earth before that time begins. That is the hour of trial. Capital T. So while I rejoice that the Lord will keep us from capital t the hour of trial. This message is not primarily about the Lord's return for us. That's for another time. This message is about the Lord's hesed for us, His love for us here and now. I mean, we know from other scripture, uh, chief uh, among them, uh, James chapter 1, that individually we're all going to fall into the hour of trial, small t. What do I mean by that? I don't, You know, I don't remember who said it. I wish I could find it. I did all my internet searches and everything. But one of the old writers, I don't think it was as old as Puritan, but it was definitely one of the older ones, said this, silence comes to every home. What he meant by that is there are pains and there are tragedies and there are sufferings that come to each person in each family where ultimately words fail and only a person's presence means anything it's not primarily used in this sense of uh, this word keep keep from this it's not used in the sense that he's going to keep you from it like hey i'm going to move you from point a to point b that's not what he it's not what he's talking about What he's talking about is he's going to give you that which you need to go through it, whatever the situation is. It's used exclusively in the sense of getting you through the trial and not from the trial. Interestingly enough, it's in John where the only other place this combination of words is used is uh, in John where the Lord himself says, I am. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This week, uh, this past week, I was doing some counseling with a, a civil air patrol as a uh, in my chaplain role in the civil air patrol with a a twelve year old, and he wanted to go home. He did not want to be where he was where he was at, and so we had these discussions and. Each one of my little discussions would bring him to a wall where he couldn't, he couldn't, he he couldn't deny it anymore and so forth and so on because he was fine. And, uh, he was a good kid. But finally he came up with one that I couldn't break through. You know what it was? But chaplain, I've prayed about this. I've prayed about this and the Lord said that he's going to take me out of it. Now what do you say to that? When the Lord speaks to somebody, I'm just saying, the conversation is over, right? And 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 so he went he went home. But the thing is this, I think we do it too. I think we do the I I think we do it too. When once we get to the place where the Lord has said something to us that we're going to get out of something, then there's no more There's no more discussion. When what we should be talking about, perhaps, is how do you cope as you're going through it? How do you maintain a deep, energetic, vital, spiritual life while you're in the midst of pain? I couldn't convince him. Sometimes I guess... If I'm honest, I can't even convince my my own self. But I would say this that when we face trials in this new year, and we will understand that if if you can understand that you're not the one, you're not the Lord of the doors. <laughs> Maybe that's a good book. Instead of Lord of the Rings, maybe I'll write a book called The Lord of the Doors. It's not you. It's not me. It's the Sovereign of the Universe. He is the One who shows you those doors. He's the One who opens and shuts them. He is the One who provides overwatch for you. The door of this new year is open and the question is what will you do with them? Will you see them? How will you live as life does its best to derail us? Father, Lord, I stand amazed. In your presence. Because ultimately, ultimately, it's like when I was in the intensive care. Ultimately, it's your presence that bears us up. Ultimately, it's not any clever phraseology, our words, possessions, things, accomplishments. None of those things, Lord. It's the presence of dearly loved with us. And Lord, the highest of that, Father, is You. We thank You that Your presence, Lord, is a presence that brings surpassing peace and joy and acceptance. And not one that casts us away. We are so grateful. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. We look forward to what you will do through us this next year. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanks. Amen.